This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Sara. And like many of us, Sara didn't just grow up in a dysfunctional home. She also eventually ended up in a long-term abusive relationship that had her in such a fog that she didn't even recognize her own self anymore. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of narcissistic abuse. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, before we get to our episode with Sarah, I just want to say that it is unfortunate that this show exists in the first place. It really is. But it does. And our audience in the last two months has tripled. And we don't expect that to slow down anytime soon. And As we grow, we are going to have growing pains from well-intentioned ideas that fall flat, and I apologize for those, to returning emails in a timely manner, to even having some of those emails get completely lost in the shuffle. You know, we're learning as we go, and we just want to thank everyone for sticking with us and being part of this community, advocating for others on Facebook, in our support group, or in in your non-digital lives too. So as we grow, we want to start providing more services for you. Soon we'll be starting a second podcast, which will be more information-based. It will be for mental health professionals to answer your questions or discuss topics surrounding narcissistic and domestic abuse. And we'll also be debuting our directory with these specific professionals, but our directory will come with an additional feature that works a lot like Quora. You'll be able to ask questions uh, to these professionals on the directory, and they'll be the ones that are answering your questions. Uh, We want to create these building blocks, and hopefully we'll create this solid foundation, you know, because one day it would be really cool if we could have, like, a dedicated phone line for everyone to call if you're in crisis, uh, just in case you just need someone to talk to. Uh, You know, that's way, 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 way kind of down the road type of idea, but... We're not close there yet, but hopefully, you know, one day we can provide that kind of service. So just kind of bear with us as we go. Uh, You know, I've gone on long enough here, but I just want to thank everyone for being part of this community, helping out when you can. A big shout out to Jules. You know, Jules was once a guest on the show and is an administrator on our Facebook support group. She's a wonderful person. I'm proud that she's my friend. 
I just want to thank her for all her hard work. You know, she, she works really hard. She's got a full life and she's out there and she's supporting everyone. So big thanks to Jules. Also, the quickest way to be part of the show is if you want to read a letter to your narcissist and be part of our Letters to a Narcissist compilation episode. We've had two already. We're doing a third. So we have a voicemail recorder on our website. Just go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right side of the page. It's always floating around, hard to miss. There's a button that says Send Voicemail. Press it, and away you'll go. We're accumulating these for Letters of, uh, letters to My Narcissist Volume 3. And if you have to record more than once, because it only records five minutes at a time, twice, three times, four times, do as many as you need. If you want us to read your letters, me and my old pal Melissa, hey Melissa, send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And now, I'm going to get out of my own way. Here is my interview with Sarah, and I'll check back in with you when it is all over. Hello, everyone out there, and welcome to this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse. With me is Sarah. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am pretty good. And you're about to tell us a story of your ex-narcissist. But before (laughs) we begin, you're going to tell us a story of your, briefly of your family. And now, without further ado, I'm going to get out of my in your way and the floor is all yours all right um well i'll go ahead and start out with just kind of setting the stage going a little bit into the background of my family because it kind of set me up for the whole relationship and the everything that happened with my ex-husband so the background of my family um I, my family's indian uh, we're indian immigrants we move here when i'm about three or four and we moved to the States and they're both of my parents growing up just absolutely despise each other. Um, they had an arranged marriage, which they only knew each other for two weeks before they got married. They were emotionally and physically abusive with each other and they still are. And they were very physically, or my mom was physically and emotionally abusive with the kids, with me, my brother, and my sister. And my dad was more neglectful more than anything else. Um, he, he is still neglectful. He was never physically abusive to us, but he was he was to my mom. So I'm not going to go too far into it, but there are a couple of things that really define my mom's um, interaction with me when growing up. I've talked to a lot of therapists, and a lot of them have you know suggested she may have borderline personality disorder, but they're always usually just almost taken aback, and they don't really know what to say when I tell them some of these stories. Um, like... I, I always knew when something was off with her, like we all knew because you could just kind of see it on her face. We would, you know, be having breakfast in the morning. And, you know, I would, I still remember I spilled a cup of milk um, on accident. I'm like, you know, four, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. I spilled a glass of milk and that leads to a full blown episode with her where she's, you know, hitting us all. And, you know, trying, she's holding my hand above a flame because I, I, you know, spilled a glass of milk she would do things like that even if I was hungry and it just set her off. So she just had complete psychotic breaks. And then I went through a lot. Um, I was abused by a relative, a family member. I was molested for years. She knew and she didn't do anything about it. She would pretend like it didn't really happen. Like at first she would say, oh, it did happen. And then 
every day after that, she would act like I was making it up, like I was crazy and I was lying. And then she would be like, well, you know, your childhood was great. I don't know what you're talking about. But then to get back at my dad, she would use the story um, and tell family members, you know, to give to shame him and to to make them think that he was terrible because, you know, it was he was a relative from my dad's side. So she would use it to re-traumatize me and then to also, uh, you know, traumatize everyone in the family, but to get her way, basically. So I had a lot of issues growing up with her. Uh, my dad knew things were going on, like she would beat us, but he never—he was always an enabler. He always kind of let her get away with it, and he was just—he never did anything to stop it. And she would leave us for months at a time to go back to India. We were, you know, really little kids, so we were kind of fending for ourselves a lot of those, a lot of that time. Um, so I grew up; I was the oldest female child, so. Traditionally, I was supposed to be like the caretaker, next in line to be the caretaker. So I just had to learn really quickly how to take care of everything. Um, so I think, I mean, that's the gist of it. I can go into so much detail about how my mom, mom is a narcissist, but she definitely set the stage for me and for everything that proceeded. And I just grew up knowing that, you know, I wasn't allowed to have any feelings. And I grew up blaming myself because when you're treated like you don't matter, you think, you know, and you're also treated like you're the reason that this person is suffering because she would always tell us that like, you know, it's, she can't live her life because she had us kids and, um, everything she was going through was always our fault. So I blamed everything on myself. I was always walking on eggshells and, you know, when someone doesn't protect you for some basic things, like they don't give you the most basic, they don't meet your most basic needs as a child, like protecting you and looking out for you and just loving you. You have a really hard time like validating those needs for yourself and realizing that you deserve that. So it just, it just really made, it was, you know, the perfect recipe to just really completely screw me up. Did you also have uh, fear of abandonment issues because your mom was always going away? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it wasn't just the, the part, the fact that she kept leaving, like sometimes she would leave and I wouldn't, I would wake up and she would just be gone because she wouldn't, she thought not telling us that she was going was going to help. I mean, obviously it didn't help when we knew either, but it definitely filled me up with that, um, with that fear of abandonment. Like I, I remember like if we were outside at a store and I turned around and I couldn't see her, I would immediately just start crying and sobbing and freaking out. Cause I thought, Oh fuck, she like left again. But the abandonment issues also come from, you know, when someone's just not there for you, when you really need them, when someone's hurting you, like, then you're taught that, yeah, you're just, you're just left feeling completely um, alone and isolated and like, and yeah, just completely abandoned. So anyways, I, I, you know, was raised in this setting, in this family. I got old enough to the point where she stopped the physical abuse, but the emotional abuse has always been consistent um, to this day. And cut to, you know, I'm 22 years old. I'm going to school. Um, I'm going to college. I am taking this English class and, you know, I love this class. And I, this is something I've, I realized growing up pretty fast that, you know, English writing, reading, like this, this is stuff that makes me feel um, like myself. And it's one of those things that I have that's just for me. I meet my, I meet this guy in there, this guy who ends up being my husband. He, I, I don't talk to him for like four months. He, I eventually ask him to help me with the paper, like at the end of the semester. And he, he's four hours late to that first meeting. And, and, I, you know, I, I keep waiting around for him because 
I already don't, you know, clearly don't have boundaries and clearly I don't realize that when someone makes you wait for them for four hours, that's not okay. Um, that's not healthy. But you didn't know that at the time. I definitely didn't know that at the time. At the time I was like, oh, he's just busy. And maybe he thinks you're, you know, I keep, I'm already making excuses for him in my head. I'm like, oh, maybe he thinks you're just hanging out and doing your paper. He doesn't know how long you'll be on campus. So I tell, I make up my own excuses. I just tell myself this other story. So, because I, I, I don't know, I just want to, I'm, I'm so set into thinking that this is something that's going to be good. And I just feel like I've already built it up in my head. Um, so he shows up and I realized later that that was already the first boundary, probably that he was testing for me. That was probably the first test. Like if this, if this girl waits around for me four hours, like in his eyes, I'm already somebody who's probably very passive. So we meet, he doesn't really help me with the paper cause I don't really need help. I, you know, I know I, I already wrote really well and it was just an excuse to talk to him. So I go home and then I go back to campus. Like if, you know, finish working on this paper, um, we end up meeting up at the library again and all of a sudden he's acting a lot more interested in me and he starts asking me all these questions about myself and I am wait, you know, I've always been a little too trusting, um, and I tend to be an open book. And I, I realize now I have to be careful about that. But at the time I had no idea that this was like something dangerous. So I tell him a lot of things about me and he's asking pretty personal questions right off the bat, you know, about my family, about, I mean, we were, we're already talking about how isolated my childhood was. And this was the second time of, you know, talk to him. And one of the weird things in that conversation was I kept trying to ask him more questions because I wanted to know about him as well. And he's not sharing anything with me. Like, the most detail he shares with me about his family is that his, his dad like likes to drink diet Coke. It was some really benign detail about his, his father, but overall he's like, yeah, you know, my dad, he just says that he has a great family and they're divorced, but everyone's good. And I'm like, okay. So he just doesn't go into that. So we start talking right away. He starts texting me a bunch. He's, you know, I leave, I go home and he just, is texting me while I'm driving on the way home. So he doesn't wait two minutes until after Morty in my car. And he's just, you know, saying like, it was such a good conversation. It was so nice meeting you. Um, I'm really glad, you know, I ended up going to the library and, you know, talk to you again. So I'm already starting to feel really flattered and like he's flirting with me. Um, we set up a date like on Friday or something like that. And we end up talking all night and he, you know, one of the things he does is he's like, oh, let's just go out, you know, like tomorrow. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, he's like really into me because he wants to see me right away. So, you know, this, all this stuff is going on. And some of this is not going to be in chronological order. So I, I apologize. But um, one of the while, you know, we're talking and meeting, we go on a couple dates. You know, he's flattering me. He's love bombing me, you know, just just constant compliments all the time. And one of the uh, conversations we have on campus is when I first, like, this is the first moment he scares me, I guess. And he, we're like flirting, he's teasing me and, and I'm teasing him back. And I do that, like, the only thing I know to do in terms of flirting is, I guess at the time, I just like, he joked, he was teasing me and I giggled and I was like, oh, you know, shut up. And, you know, I said in a teasing way, I definitely wasn't serious about him shutting up. He just, like, I still remember the posture he sat in. It was directly in front of me. He had his hands together and he just looked at me and it looked like 
his face totally changed. And that immediately probably reminded me that fear probably came from remembering my mom's mood instantly change. Cause he just stared at me directly in my eyes and looked like there's nothing there. And very seriously, he was just like, you need to apologize for saying that. And I thought he was joking at first and I was, and I wasn't sure what he was talking about. So I was like, Oh, apologize for what? Um, and maybe that's me just being nervous in the moment. And he's like, you need to apologize for saying shut up to me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, like I apologize. I just instantly said, sorry, because I instantly, I was just scared. Um, and I, I didn't really know what just happened, but I definitely felt really ashamed because I felt like I had just done something wrong and I just disappointed this, the first person who's ever shown any interest in me in my life at that point in time. So I, yeah, so I instantly apologized. So, 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 so once, sorry about that. So once this happened and there was, I guess, an anger from the other side in the sense of maybe, did you feel like it was authoritative in any way? It definitely felt that way. Like, and you, um, and like, you conformed immediately to mm-hmm. that tone, that look, and mm-hmm. it wasn't even something you thought about because to you that was just a natural thing to do. Exactly. Like instantly it's like, yeah, it just felt animalistic. That reaction was just something in my body knew I just had to protect myself. So I thought, okay, I just have to apologize because this is scaring me right now. The first, yeah, the first part of the relationship was, was great. I mean, he's definitely making me feel, aside from that moment, obviously there's definitely little red flags here and there. Um, he's still love bombing me all the time. He's giving me, you know, jewelry, but more importantly, he's just telling me how much he's, he's talking to me about, he's talking about me to all his friends and he's already bragging about me to them. And he's telling them how, how cool I am and how interesting I am. And, you know, so I feel like he's put me up on this pedestal and I feel, I definitely start to feel very seen and like, he really cares about me. He, you know, calls me on really, like he is, this was sometime in December actually. So this month, which is crazy. So he um, goes on vacation with his family to London and he's calling me on, uh, the and it's around December, so he calls me on Christmas and he calls me on New Year's Eve, and we had just started hanging out with each other, and it's still very new, and so the the fact that he's making it a point to call me on these important dates, because I didn't expect him to do that, but he made it a point to, um, and of course, if someone's calling you from overseas, it's kind of a big deal, you know, especially when you're not that close to them yet. So, you know, he's, he's just doing a lot of things to make me feel incredibly special and important. He's taking time out of his family vacation to make me a, a priority. And he was talking about us like we're already a team. He's saying he's never met anyone like me before. Um, we have a few interesting moments while he's on vacation. One of the times that he calls me, you know, or one of the times that we're talking, we he shares, we're talking about music and we're talking about all our interests and we're sharing our favorite songs. And so in my head, I'm thinking, okay, he's telling me his favorite song. And I was thinking about what my favorite song is and I'm going to tell him. And before I can even say what my favorite song is, I think I maybe start out describing the song. And then he's like, Oh, it's Avril 14th by Aphex twin. And in my head, I'm like, what the fuck? Like, how did he know what song I was thinking? Like, so it, it kind of weirded me out, but in a good way, which I think now, knowing what I know now, that would creep me out and not, you know, not be a good feeling. But, you know, in that moment, I, you know, I was 22. I'm naive. I, I don't really, 
you know, I have nothing to measure this up against, except I think this is a great guy. So I get it in my head that he, you know, maybe he knows it's for a reason. Maybe, you know, we're supposed to be talking for a reason because this song was just something that was super important to me. I had been listening to it since I was 14 or 15 years old. Um, I started when I started writing around that age and, and I would write a lot to that song. So it can was just a really can, weird coincidence. Can I interrupt for one second? Mm-hmm. I listened to that yeah. song because, uh, you know, we had our pre-call and everything. Mm-hmm. For everyone out there who doesn't know the song, there are no words to it. Mm-mm. This is, uh, you know, I, how many downloads it had on or, or views it had on YouTube. Not that many. This is mm-hmm. very obscure song for two people. Yeah. To have as their best song. And I think when I listen to the other Aphex Twin songs, they don't have any <laughs> words. They don't. And they're kind of weird. <laughs> so this is very rare for two people to say that this is their favorite song. Yeah. Either the biggest coincidence in the world. Yeah. Or someone already knew that this was your favorite song. Right. And so, like I said, I listen to it all the time. So, it, I mean, I it was it was four months where we had class together. Maybe he heard me talking about the song to someone. Maybe he heard me listening to it. I don't know. But it, it's really weird. And it is really obscure. And um, I remember talking to him about it. And I would say how much the song means to me. And his response to that was, yeah, I play that song for, you know, my friends once. And they just didn't get it. You know, but I feel like you get it. <laughs> And in my head at the time, I was like, oh, my God, he totally gets it. And so... Of course he would. Of course he would. (laughs) Right. Like, when when I went to go listen to that song, I thought I was about to hear the catchiest song in the world, like like an indie (laughs) college song. And then, I'm not saying any offense to your taste in music, but I was just like, (laughs) like, that was interesting to think that two people had that specific... Because obviously, all of their songs have no words and are in that uh, was it melancholy or I don't know if that would be the proper term, but yeah. it, it was, you could have picked any of their songs in their catalog. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought it was like, that could be way more than a coincidence. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's weird. So that moment planted a seed in my head for the whole relationship uh, because I, I kept telling myself, well, Sarah, that's a really big coincidence. Like, that must mean something. And I would say that in my head every time I started having doubts in a relationship. And it's, it makes no sense. It's such an irrational thing to tell yourself when someone's treating you like shit. You know, like, why would you stay with that person just because of a coincidence like that? But it definitely, it was just a weird seed that was planted and just an excuse I attached myself to to, to stay with him. And then the other thing was, um, I, you know, I shared with him, you know, books and stuff. And at the time, it was easier for me to to describe myself through, you know, songs or lyrics or books because I, I probably had a very hard time, you know, identifying who I was at that time. So I would be like, yeah, like, have you read this story or that story really means a lot to me. And so I told him about this, this my favorite book, um, Winesburg, Ohio, and I, how I read it when I was 15, and that's why I started writing and how it changed my life, and, and it did, and I stick by that still. It was super impactful for me, and, and it really helped me cope with a lot of really bad stuff going on in my life. And I told him about a specific story in that book, and the story is, is 
interesting. It's kind of about this this girl, and it's about how this guy is telling her how it's harder to to be loved and to allow yourself to be loved than to love others. And I remember reading that my whole life, and um, up until that point, thinking like that really it just it made sense to me. And I told him about that, and he at first when I told him to read a story, he he read it and he was kind of upset he got kind of angry with me. And I almost like he interpreted me asking him to read that story as me saying I was too afraid to be with him or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was that he said, but it was something along those lines. And it was a really weird reaction. I thought, because I thought I was just sharing something interesting with him about myself. I didn't think it was going to be like threatening at all. Cause it's just a story. Um, so we didn't talk for a couple of days. He just, you know, again, went from all over me to, I'm not talking to you anymore. And I thought something really wrong had happened. And then he calls me again and he's like, Oh, I read that story again. And I think I understand it better now. And he acted like the story tells me so much about you. And he acted like he understood it finally. And I didn't realize at the time that he was probably taking the most meaningful thing I ever had in my life up until that point, something that mattered so much to me. And he was just, he was probably using it to manipulate me. He probably read that story and saw some vulnerabilities I had and just kind of used it to, to find more weaknesses in me. But anyways, I don't see any of that at this. I, I still think that this is a great, this is going great and whatever. So yeah, the first month or uh, first two months, he's, a, he's established trust. I'm fully in. I, you know, totally look up to him. I think he's so smart and, you know, I see us, us as a team. He's like, we're, he's finally like, we're official now. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I didn't realize what, you know, I, well, he just kind of decided when we were official and I just went along with it, even though I, you know, wasn't seeing anyone else at the time. And he, he's really good at, we had a lot of similar interests and a lot of things that we hated. So he, he, be, he was just very good at um, mirroring my things I liked and things I didn't like. So again, I'm, I'm still thinking like, we're, we're, how did I find somebody who's so much like me, who's, who understands me so much? But in the second month or so, the second or third month, things really start going downhill. He started picking out a lot of my interests and um, he, he would say a lot of, uh, disparaging things about um he started saying disparaging things about my looks like at first he would start picking on things like I was eating and he would say like oh that's really unhealthy are you sure you want to eat that and in my head I was thinking like he knows I have I struggled with eating disorders growing up so why is he saying that and again I'm making up excuses for him in my head I'm thinking oh he means well maybe you know you're just being you know you're just being too sensitive right now and so he's always gotten a wandering eye and he's always saying, oh, this person's really pretty or that person's beautiful. And just to the point where I was like, you know, uncomfortable about it. So anyway, he's, he's finding all kinds of ways to degrade me um, on my appearance. He, he, the controlling part um, starts coming through pretty quickly. He does not like it when I'm on my phone. He always thinks I'm talking to a guy. At one point, he asked me to show him all his all my contacts. 
So he goes through all my contacts. And if there's any males, he asked me to remove any males from my phone. And then he's like, why do you have so many guys phone numbers? And I just, you know, just these are just numbers I've had over time. I don't even know who half these people are. And, you know, there's, I have no investment in it. And I definitely didn't want to take the time to delete every number. Um, but of course to, you know, make him feel better. I did. And he would say weird things. Like it's, it wasn't directly like you're not allowed to talk to them as much as it was like, well, Sarah, you know, it's like your choice to continue talking to them, but you know that if you do something like that, I don't know if I can be with someone who does that. So it was always like this implication of an ultimatum where if you choose to do this, I will, you know, it was, it was a very subtle ultimatum in a sense. You know, it's very odd. I was just watching the matrix before (laughs) we came on here and the matrix is a lot about choice where it's all part of the movie is the, the thought process of it's the illusion of choice. And, and yeah. he's giving you the illusion of choice where in reality, you, you actually do not have one. Exactly. Well, the only, well, exactly. Cause it's, I'm cornered into thinking this is the only option if I want to keep him around basically. So, yeah, so he's, he does a lot of that. Um, I, so I stopped talking to boys altogether cause I think, you know, one, I've, I think uh, I don't. I'm being treated as if I'm doing something bad if I do that. So I don't have any guy friends. So it's it's kind of like he's also isolating me at that point in time. So he starts undercutting the most important thing to me at the time, which was writing. He starts getting really insecure about that. Um, I got a lot of attention for writing from my teachers. And I had this little journal at the time, this little online journal that some people would read and people would encourage me about it and compliment me about it. And he, one, he stopped complimenting me about it pretty quick because I think he realized I, I, you know, I, I was already getting feedback from other people that was positive and it just made him feel insecure, but he had this habit of turning all my good things into bad things. So the writing was this big opportunity for me to get this internship when I was with him at the time. And it was through the same professor he had a couple years ago. He tells me that he you know, he's like, I feel a little competitive with you about the internship thing. Cause it, you know, something like that was an offer to him. So I've already realized that this is making him insecure. And of course I don't go through with it. And again, he's just, he's, he's really working at turning things. I, I care about things that make me who I am, things that are good. And he's turning them into something that are, they're no longer good. And they're, hurting him in some ways. So I start, you know, losing pieces of my identity and things that are important to me, things that make me happy. So the term, the term that we discussed before you came on the show was you called it inverting. Was it inverting negatives? It was inverting positives. Inverting positives. Sorry. Yeah. Inverting positives. So what he's doing here is taking a positive thing for you, especially from when you were growing up, something that you actually had mm-hmm. that was yours, that you were proud of, that you were good at. And it was something really big for you, very big. And now he's making you think negatively of this thing that you love, which is take now going to start taking joy out of a lot of your life in that sense, I assume, because this is mm-hmm. something that has really gotten you through to this point of your life. Yeah. Yeah. This was, this was the writing was 
writing was how I found my voice writing. It wasn't through anything else writing. I started when I was like 14 or 15. That is when I found my voice. That's when I found a way to do, to talk about my childhood, what I went through, what I was feeling, what I was thinking, because there was no other sounding board for that in my life. And writing was that thing for me. So it saved a lot of who I am. Um, and it helped me figure out who I was in a lot of ways. So, and he, he knew how vital it was. I told him everything and I shared a lot of the writing with him. So he, he knew a lot of very intimate details about, about me more than anyone else. Um, so he knew exactly what he was doing in you. And that, and that's, you know, what they do is they take something that probably grounds you and they try to remove that from beneath you so that you're destabilized. Um, and just so everyone knows this, this, a lot of this has happened right now in a very short amount of time and mm -hmm. you've been undermined with a lot of, uh, comments and like those are a lot, a lot of devaluing you, uh, comment wise and nitpicking. He's done the X's being crazy type of stuff going on. The control stuff that he's been implementing over this period of time, uh, is a, an immense amount that has been going on. And now this, uh, taking your positives away from you. And just also for everyone out there, this is a short amount of time, but your relationship did last for six years. Mm -hmm. Correct. So, you know, this is just kind of the beginning of everything. And, and this went on for a very long time. And I guess we'll eventually get into the point where we'll explain that he was also in the military. Yeah. So this is all the very beginning of the relationship. And a few months in, he tells me that he, so he's in the Navy and he's in the reserves and he tells me he gets called up for deployment. So the deployment is supposed to start at the six month mark in our relationship. And he, I find out later that he didn't get called up. He signed up for it. But when he's telling me the story about how, you know, I'm getting called up to go overseas. He gets emotional and cries in front of me, which now that I think about it is really funny because that means that he totally faked crying um, in front of me. Um, and, you know, he's talking about it like it's this really emotional thing for him and that he doesn't want to go because what we have is it's starting out to be so good. And he doesn't want to mess things up so early. Um, and this is his second deployment and the first deployment he went on. He, he references how that, you know, really ruined his other relationship and how he doesn't want that to happen to us. So, you know, I'm like, I've not been together with him for so, for that long, but I'm already, you know, pretty, you know, head over heels in love with him. And I'm thinking, of course, I'm going to be there for him when he goes overseas. Like he didn't ask for this to happen and, you know, I'll totally be there for him. So like a hundred percent loyalty at this point for me. So his first deployment is at the six month mark of our relationship he is gone for about, a, he's almost gone for a year, almost a year, it's like 10 to 11 months. And then he's back home for about a year and then he's deployed again. And before he's deployed the second time is when we get married. So there's a lot of, this is some stuff that probably won't be in chronological order. There's this girl he talks about from his philosophy class that he's taking and he spends weeks telling me how much he hates her. And he calls her really bad names. And he's like, I just hate her. She's so cold and she thinks she's so much better than everyone. Um, and, you know, sometimes when you hear somebody talk about so how much they hate someone, you're like, I wonder if they're overcompensating for something. The next thing I know, I'm in his car and he's listening to a mix CD. And he's like, I was like, oh, this is good. What is this? And he's like, oh, this is from that girl from my class. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the one you say you hate? 
she gave you a mix CD? And then all of a sudden they're hanging out all the time and going to bars and drinking and it's always without me. And he comes home late. And one night I joined them and at the bar, he, um, she's teasing him about how he's always on his phone. And so I was thinking, oh, okay, teasing's okay right now. So I can join in and poke fun at him because that's what we're doing. So I say something about how like, yeah, first thing he does in the morning is, is get on his phone. And that's all I say. And that leads to a full out fight in the middle of the bar in front of her where he's yelling at me. And I feel like I'm arguing with a lawyer, like he's interrogating me and, and asking me what proof I have that he's addicted to his phone and all this other stuff. And I'm, I just start crying and she gets up to go to the bathroom and I just leave. Um, and that ended up with him not, you know, I, I texted him when I got back to my apartment, he didn't answer his phone for hours and that ended up with me forgiving him at one thirty in the morning where he's like, yeah, I was hanging out with her and I just brought my phone in the car and, um, I'm really sorry. And he, you know, he said some drawn out apology about his insecurities and all this other stuff. And, and I believed everything he said. And, you know, so he's also, you know, throughout all this time, he's just realizing how many boundaries he can push of mine and how much I'm tolerating. And it just keeps getting worse and worse from here on. Um, he's, when he's, you're sitting at that table, did you feel that you were the third wheel in their relationship? Absolutely. And I, it's funny that you say that because I felt like the third wheel all the time with him. Um, I always felt like I was, the way I said it was, I always felt like I was a supporting actress in his film. And I was just there to to make him look good. And yeah, always third wheeling. And it was always about them and whoever he was talking to, but especially if it was a female, particularly in, in those situations. So, yeah. So and, and one, also, one, la- one last thing, cause I'm sorry for yeah. interrupting. It was just that when That's you, okay. cause when you said before the part about, uh, you know, when he doesn't, sorry, <laughs> what do I say? When you said the part about when he is, you know, saying that he doesn't like someone, it just for me, I was I just I my memory goes boom right back to uh-huh. mine, and that was their mo. Whenever they said they didn't like something, that was their sleight of hand trick. It was like you're not going to look at this person now because I've already stated for so long how much I have disdain for them. So why would that person be um, a threat? Right. But in reality. Yeah. They were the threat. They just made you look over there immediately by saying it. Exactly. Yeah, because, yeah, every time I brought it up, the line was always, you know, like, you know how much I didn't like her. You know, It was always like, you're crazy. Why would you think that, Sarah? So there was nowhere for me to go from there. That was basically him telling me, like, you shouldn't believe what you're thinking and feeling because it's it's not true, you know. So already being conditioned to, to think that. And yeah, so there were several girls uh, throughout the relationship. And I, I do remember that night, um, it was not that night, but maybe the following day, he gave me a whole lecture on how I'm codependent. And again, that authoritative thing, like he's lecturing me and as if I don't know what the fuck is going on or anything. And, and then he gives me a book on codependency that I read. And then I believe that I'm, I'm the problem. You know, he's treating me now that like you're you know, I, he apologized, but then he went from that to actually you're the problem. And, and I, I believe that for the majority of the relationship that I was the problem. At what age um, does he give you that book on codependency? I was probably still 
22 years old. And he's yeah. around the same age? No, he's older than me. He was about five years older than me. Okay. Or six. Five or six years older than me. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a pretty, um, he, it's a pretty advanced type of tactic or move. I would say like at 22, do they even, mm-hmm. does a 22 year old even know what codependency <laughs> is? I didn't. Yeah. yeah and, I and at tw- 27, I didn't know what codependency was. So, you know, right. he was really doing his work. He, well, he was. And like, that's the thing. Like he was smart, but any in- intelligence he had, he, he perfected his manipulation with that intelligence. Um, and, and yeah, I didn't know what codependency was until I did read that book. And I'd only been in therapy by that point in time for like six months or less. And it was with a therapist. I didn't, I wasn't really getting anything out of anyway. So I just, I had, I really wasn't, I really had no idea internally what was going on. So another aspect of of him was another way that he manipulated this whole situation was he, and I, I know narcissists are really tend to be really charming people. He was the epitome of charm and he was so personable and all of his friends just like, like when he was around, he was definitely the center of attention. He was a storyteller. He had all the good stories. He was also the comedian and he was, he was just, you know, revered for his intelligence and, um, his friends have no clue what's going on behind doors. And I, and I quickly realizing that this person I I'm spending all this time with is so different when we're out in public. And I think I'm crazy because I don't understand how somebody can go from being such a terrible human being to being such a good human being. When you were out in public and you knew mm-hmm. the behind the doors persona and you're watching him being so charismatic with friends and strangers and everything, do you or are you watching it from your own body or are you kind of watching it from behind you watching you watching it go on? If that makes sense. That does make sense. Um I definitely didn't feel like I was in my body. You know, that's funny that you put it that way, but it definitely didn't feel like I was, it was one of those moments where I felt like my head like was kind of floating and I was just like, I felt really blank and almost like, am I hearing this right? Is this really happening? But I also, and so a part of me, like when you witness something like that, maybe a healthy person would be like, Hey, what's that about? You know, but I remember being too afraid to bring that up because he was also I realized quickly how insecure and fragile he seemed and how how insecure he was about any uh any criticism. So I knew that if I did bring this up to him and accused him essentially of of you know pretending to be something he wasn't, he it would be a full blown meltdown. And I have and I knew that would probably be the end of the relationship. So I just never brought it up. I just chose to ignore it. Um, and at the same time, he's doing all this, you know, his friends think he's great, but he's also like, he's going into, he's telling them a lot of stories about our fights, personal details about our fights that make me out to be like, I'm irrational and crazy and make it out to be like, he's just very patient and, you know, um, so he's he's, he's proactively discrediting you to your, to them to make you look incompetent. Yeah, to me, yeah, to make me look incompetent, overly emotional, hysterical, everything. He had a habit. He just, yeah, he thought it was funny to tell the stories from his perspective when, you know, in fact, it was just extremely degrading and just made me feel really, really invalidated and really stupid. 
so anyways, it's, it's a whirlwind. It's like this for some time. Um, eventually he told me I need to go into, um, counseling again. And I was doing counseling on and off at the time. So I go back into counseling. He tells me I need to see a counselor. So, you know, of course not him, just me. So I go into counseling and then my counselor is like, maybe you should do couples therapy. So I suggest that to him. We end up seeing a few couples therapists for like a couple years, um, on and off. And we see maybe three or four, I think. And he is really good. I, it, this whole experience was really terrible for me because I put a lot of trust in my therapist and each therapist just loved him, you know? So, and a lot of that time I couldn't bring up, he told me I wasn't supposed to bring up certain things in our relationship because he was not ready to talk about it and he was too embarrassed so I just, I didn't bring up a lot of stuff. Um, so when the therapists are validating him mm-hmm. over you, at that point, do you think officially that you have gone crazy? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think so. It wasn't until I started seeing um, a ther- a new therapist. She was the first one who started making me feel less crazy because she you know, probably caught on to some details I shared and realized that there was a lot more going on beneath the surface than I was letting on. And what was not very smart is I felt threatened by that because she started challenging me about it and I stopped seeing her. So fast forward, you know, this is just, I'm just living, I'm just really miserable. I had just gotten to the point where I felt so uncomfortable and unwanted and unsafe that the just being around him just made me just made my blood curdle. It just made me really unhappy. So another incident that happened towards the very end that of course totally deflated any possible chance of this working out was I went to a pharmacy and I had a card that has money on it and I use it to get, you know, whatever medications I need. And what's funny is I was supposed to go to the pharmacy to get, it's not funny, I guess, but it is a little funny now, but I was going back to the pharmacy because I need to get Xanax because I was getting Xanax because my doctor was like, wow, you're going through a lot in your marriage. Like, I think you need some Xanax. So I was going to get Xanax for myself because of him. I couldn't afford the Xanax and I didn't know why, because I know I had enough money in there and I make a bunch of phone calls I call the pharmacy and um, I go back and I call the insurance company and everything. They said somebody had spent $250 from my card. And I was like, I have no medications that cost $250. Um, But we did share this card, but nothing we had cost that much money. And at this point in time, we had not been um, sleeping together for nine months about and we just almost never slept together for a majority of that relationship. So when I go to the counter, they, they, they are like, so you're, um, you know, somebody who had your car, your husband came in here and he purchased Cialis and Cialis is kind of like Viagra. And I was really surprised <laughs> Because, of course, we're not doing anything. And, if, but, you know, all the signs are there, right? Like, I call him and I, I can't hold back at this point. I'm way too pissed off. So I'm like, what is what is going on? Like, you you purchased 
see Alice and you didn't tell me I have no money in my account. He's like, I can't talk to you right now. You're being, I can't talk to you when you're like this, you're being, you know, irrational. And I told you, I don't like it when you get like this. (laughs) So I'm like, okay. Um, he hangs up on me and then I'm like, you know, screw this. So I start texting him and I'm like, you need to explain what just happened, what's going on. And I'm like, where is the pill bottle? I'm going to find it. I need to count how many pills are in there because if one's missing, even if one isn't missing, it doesn't matter. Cause I mean, he, he did it. He's already, you know, not being faithful and he won't tell me where the pill bottle is. So, and, you know, to this day, I was never able to count how many pills were in the bottle and that's fine. Um, but it really bothered me in that moment. Cause I feel like I just, I kept wanting more and more proof of what he was really doing. And so he knew that and he knew it was driving me crazy that he wasn't telling me where the pill bottle was. Like he knew he could hold that over my head. It really didn't matter. I mean, you guys weren't yeah. uh, sexually active at the time and he just got Cialis. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he was doing uh, a nice railroad job of deflection and reversing it back onto you to make it that you were crazy. And he did a very good job of it. He did. He was really, really good at it. Um, and it's kind of mind blowing. You like, you, like you have no idea what's happened to you until you're out of that situation. Um, but yeah, he was, he was really, really good at, at twisting everything around to make it seem like, you know, nothing, I nothing I thought was happening was actually happening. So I just, I didn't, I mean, yeah. I didn't think I was living in reality. I don't, I just was really confused all the time. You were getting gaslit and yeah. you had the fog at this point. Is the fog lifting? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that was definitely, um, yeah. And for those that at don't understand point, the fog, it's fear, obligation, and guilt. And that's just the terminology. If you're new to narcissism and narcissistic abuse. So at this point in your relationship, you've been confused and mm-hmm. now, uh, you are that confusion is slowly dissipating and you're starting to see these things for what they are. Exactly. Yeah. And so when I do finally leave, I, I was really proud of myself at the moment. Like I was definitely devastated, but I was also surprised that I left and he, he messages me, I think a couple days later and he's like, so I think we should try giving one more, we should just do one more couples therapy session. He was like, just to make for absolute sure that like this, there's no hope left. And my sister is like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> um, but of course I do because I don't want to be, I don't want to be the bad guy that he paints. You know, I don't want him to be like, well, she didn't even try to go couples counseling for the last, you know, I didn't want him to paint it out to be like, I gave up too easily or something. So I give in and we go to couples therapy like for three weeks, like once a week. And that whole span of time, he doesn't talk to me outside of couples therapy while we are in couples therapy. I'm not really sure what we're talking about while we're there. He doesn't even say very much. And I'm like, what's even happening here? Like there's obviously no hope left. And at the third, at the third session, I, I just call him a coward and it, I could tell how angry it made him because I've just had it. Um, and I realize now that it's, you know, he, he was dragging this whole process along because one to just make, to just hurt me. 
Um, but also because he didn't like that I left that in, in his world made, gave me a power that he did not want me to have. And he also wanted to drag this along because my brother worked at the VA at the time and he was getting some paperwork process for um, disability for an injury he had on his hand. And he, I, at one point during one of our arguments, he was, he was like, he got paranoid that my brother, if, if I, you know, if my, if I told my brother what was going on, then my brother would somehow put a stop to this paperwork going through and then he would never get the disability income that he was trying to get. So I, I didn't realize this till later, but I'm pretty sure he was waiting for that paperwork to be finalized before finally telling me, oh yeah, hire a divorce lawyer and we're, we're done now. And like, that's all it was. So it ends there, <laughs> kind of. Um, I, I end up feeling really like that first drive home from, from going away from him for that final time. I, you know, I was crying. I was like, what just happened? Is this real? Is my life is like totally been turned upside down. Like, you know, you just left this person you thought your it was your new family was this new beginning for you. And you realize that you've lost it all. So it's, it's this crazy, you know, you just, yeah, I just feel like I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know what's going to happen next. And the next feeling almost immediately after that was relief. Like I was definitely sad and I was definitely traumatized, but I felt so much relief because I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to be around this person anymore. And I am starting to realize like how miserable he made me. Um, and how terrible he was. You can breathe, you can, you can breathe for the first time to quote, uh, Kelly Clarkson. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There we go. She gets it. Yeah. Um, so this is the first time I've actually ever been on my own in my life and safe, not living with an abusive person away from my mom, away from my ex and kind of able to start that healing process again. I've spent the last four years, uh, I've been single. I haven't dated a soul. I haven't, I've spent three years not feeling attracted to another human being. Um, like the idea of being with someone was really repulsive to me. And but you just needed a hard reset. I did. I didn't just spend four years, you know, being miserable. I spent four years like learning about myself again. And so what have you learned about yourself? A lot, (laughs) like a lot. Um, and I think that a lot of that has been this, just this last year because of, I've finally been able to have my own place and and be on my own without having to worry, you know, constantly look over my shoulder at what the next person is going to do to hurt me. Um, I've learned I've it's I've been working on kind of like finding my voice again because I think that first three years where I was still trying to like survive, um, it was a really big distraction from dealing with everything I had dealt with and not only in my childhood, but also with my ex. Um, so I've started writing again. Writing is one of those things that I've always been really, really scared about picking up again because I've, I just feel like I'm going to fail at it. I feel like it's, I'm just going to lose it again and it's just going to disappear. And that was such a big part of my identity that I feel like I, for a long time, I didn't know who I was without the writing. Um, and one of the, one of the, one of the ways I look at it, I guess, is, 
um, one of the reasons I wear it like a badge of honor is because I see a lot of other people who kind of get into one relationship after another and they don't really seem to be okay with being alone. And they seem really uncomfortable about kind of processing things that they're going through. And I know that, I know that my brother, for example, really struggled with that. Like he went the other direction. He went, he went and adopted traits from my parents and he didn't really, he didn't really escape that pattern. But I knew that I needed to kind of get out of that cycle and be alone for a while and, you know, kind of confront these, these demons that had been chasing me. Um, and, and I'm really sorry. Can I stop for a second? Cause I can feel myself panicking right now. <laughs> Um, which is, I didn't surprise is happening. I just, I think I'm just getting a little emotional and yeah, sorry. I just need a second. Okay. Sorry. Um, don't apologize. <laughs> not needed. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I think I just panicked and I just totally lost track of what I was saying. Um, then we were talking about your healing and, yeah. you know, being alone and n- not minding being alone and, it being a badge of honor for you. Um, and I think people, a lot of people on the outside, sometimes maybe they don't get it. That's where I feel the pressure from, <laughs> um, you know, like family or, you know, maybe some people don't always understand why, or maybe don't understand that you do like being alone because th- while like the last year, especially I realized that the, you know, the la- when I left my ex, I like, I've always been a very, I've always been very in touch with my emotions. I've always been very, you know, when I feel things, I feel things really strongly. Like if I feel happy, I feel really happy. If I feel really sad, I feel really sad. And for like three years, I think I didn't feel hardly anything. And it, that I didn't understand what was going on with me. I was, you know, I was used to using my emotions to write and I was used to experiencing the world through how I felt. And I felt like I just wasn't really alive for a long time. I kind of felt like a zombie and I was just going through the motions every day. Um, and I started thinking about that a lot. And I realized that, you know, when you, when you're not only like in my childhood, but when you're in a relationship, when you're with anyone who, who is constantly attacking you, to protect the things that matter most to you, you know, the most precious parts of yourself, you armor that up to protect it. And I think over the years, especially with my ex, I had armored it up to the point where I had no idea how to unlock it again. And, and I can, I really thought for a while there, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to feel again. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to be able to fall in love again. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to like allow someone in my life like that to, you know, be with me in that way. Like, I don't even know if I'm capable of this stuff anymore. I totally kind of resigned myself to believing that I'm supposed to be alone. And I, growing up, I also, for the majority of my life, told myself I was bad luck. Sometimes I just kind of told myself I was kind of doomed to, to experience, you know, not great things. So I kind of started believing that after a while. It wasn't until I got here I spent a few months alone and I, the feelings started creeping back in. Like it would be, it would be the most random moments. I'd be watching a movie or listening to a song and out of nowhere, I'd get a flashback or I'd get a memory or I'd get like this random thought that I was like, I need to write about this. And 
it's been a challenge because there's definitely like I can when I feel myself opening up, I can it's almost physically I can feel my body tensing up too at the same time. Like I'm still physically and emotionally trying to figure out is it safe to unlock those parts of myself yet and expose that. Um but I can I can definitely say after a year of being here and after a year of working on that healing process and putting in that effort and going to therapy and being willing enough to see to trust, you know, friends again at least, that part is still very much alive and it's still there and I really hope it comes back. I know it's not going to come back the same way again. Like I'm definitely I'm definitely different. I'm, I'm you know, I've learned how to have boundaries. I've learned to be less trusting of people and I don't see it like, I don't see that as a bad thing. Um, I think that those parts of me are just things I have to be a lot more protective about because I think the world tends to teach people who are vulnerable that that's a weakness. Um, especially abusers, you know, they tend to teach you that those things that are really special about you are actually weaknesses. So those aren't good and you should, you know, you shouldn't let those parts be seen. And I just, I think that you just have to be really careful about who you allow, who you give those parts to. And it's not the same thing as locking it away. It's just about being more careful and that treating yourself, you know, with more love and compassion means having better boundaries and being more careful about who you share yourself with. Um, and finding my voice has definitely been terrifying. I think that's why this, you know, doing, having this experience with you is I didn't expect it to be this intense for me. And I think the reason it's kind of scary and I'm glad I'm taking the leap because I, I want to, and I need to, but because I don't know what it's like to really have my own voice, but I'm realizing that it's mine and it belongs to me and I'm going to take it back. It's, it's different when you're empowering yourself. It's, it's a whole different journey. You, that's something that I know that can never be taken away by anyone. When you listen to this episode, next week when it comes out you're going to hear yourself say those words and you're going to feel like i'm feeling right now because i feel fantastic for you i feel amazing listening to you hear say that it was pow- it's very powerful to have it come out of your mouth and when you hear it yourself out of your own mouth because everyone who i've spoken to uh who's listened to themselves after they've listened to themselves they see listen it's a it's a big step to hear it and I have a feeling next week when I talk to you, you're going to change a little and it's going to be a real positive change once you hear it. <laughs> I hope so. I think, I definitely think this is a step in the right direction. Like, I think, you know, I keep talking about the last four years, like they were, you know, I kind of felt like I was dead inside or whatever. <laughs> and so I felt like I was definitely surviving for three years of it because I was just trying to get out of one abusive situation after another. And this last year was when, you know, I really saw the changes happening because I was safe for the first time um, in my life, which is kind of crazy to think about that now because I'm 32 now. And that means I've only spent one year of that being safe. So there's a lot more, there's a lot more ahead of me. Um, But I always kind of see the last few years, like, I don't know if anyone's seen Stranger Things, but they, they have like that, you know, the upside down or whatever it's called. And it's like, it's a different like dimension and, but it's, it's like the inverse of the real world. And that's where all of like your worst nightmares exist, right? That's where there's like nothing good can creep there. There's no light there. And it's just stuck in 
limbo. And um, that's where I feel like I had been for a really long time, like just living in this nightmare. And I've been trying to find a way out. And I think at first I was afraid to find my way out because I know that if I, if I, you know, like if I wanted to, I'd ha- I was going to encounter scary things. I was going to encounter monsters and things that were probably really, really terrifying. And, and I don't know if you've ever like woken up in the middle of the night and you've had a really, really bad nightmare and you're, you're too terrified to move or open your eyes, but you know, you have to. And the moment you do, you're like, Oh, okay. It's not that bad. It's nothing there. It's like, I kind of compare it to that in a way. Like, even if there is a monster there, it's like, you just got to like look under your bed and, and look at it. And most of the time there's nothing there. There's definitely not something as scary as you think it's going to be. And once I started opening my eyes a little bit and making that journey out of that really dark place, I started seeing like, okay, there's this dim light there and I just got to make it to that light because, you know, in a way I have to rescue myself and I have to save myself and no one's going to do that for me. And when you recognize that you have to save yourself, when you recognize that you're rescuing yourself, for some reason, something switches and you realize that clearly if you want to save yourself, there's something worth saving. And if you want to save yourself, that means you see there's worth inside of you. And I mean, I would never, I hate to say this, like I, I really despise my ex and I, I really hate everything he put me through, but I feel like the strongest person I've ever been in my whole life. And I, I, I'm like surprised myself every day. Like I wake up in Oregon. It's a place I never thought it'd ever be. I live in my own apartment. I have, you know, two pets. I have great, you know, friends here. Um, like, and I'm on my own. I did all that on my own. And I, and I can say that. And I can say that no one helped me get here and I did it for myself and I did it myself. And there's just nothing that beats that. There's just no achievement in my life that beats that. So that I thank him for. I definitely thank him for that. And you should be very <laughs> proud of yourself. I mean, you had an incredibly difficult upbringing. You had all of these patterns of survival your whole entire life that where you lost your identity of who you were and now you're finally taking your power back and becoming the person you were always meant to be yeah that's that's definitely what it feels like um and yeah and it's kind of exciting so before we end our show do you have any last words for everyone out there oh yeah I think so. Um, I think, I think like one of the things I never trusted when I was with my ex was I always wondered why I didn't feel loved when I was with him. And when I was, he would always tell me it was, Oh, it's because you're insecure. It's because you're this, because you're that. And I spent a lot of time wondering why, what was wrong with me? Why didn't I feel loved? And I think it's really important to, (laughs) to trust yourself. If you're not feeling loved with the person you're with, um, there's a reason and to trust your gut about that. You're always smarter and so much stronger than you realize that you're capable, that you, than you think you are. I had, I did not think I was like, I didn't leave him for such a long time because I didn't think I could. I didn't think I had the strength to, I didn't know. I didn't know what my life held after that. 
and it wasn't until after I left him that I realized just how strong I really was. Um, yeah. So I would say definitely trust your gut. And if you don't feel loved by the person you're with, there's a reason for that. You should, you should be able to feel loved and you should feel like you deserve it. And if you don't, then you should, yeah, trust yourself. There's a reason your, your body and your mind is telling you that. Well, Sarah, thank you for sharing your story with me. It was an honor that you shared this with me. Thank you. This evening. I appreciate it. I'm like sweating a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we got, I got to bring up, I never thought I'd bring up Kelly Clarkson in an episode. <laughs> we discussed American Psycho. I never thought that was, well, I had a feeling maybe that would happen. You know, Patrick Bateman. Uh, Stranger Things. I think this might have been the second time I've discussed Stranger Things. I've always, you know, you brought the nerd, the film nerd out of me and the pop culture nerd out of me. That's kind I just like feel like those are great. Those, um, I don't know, good metaphors for. You were, you were, uh, you were great with your metaphors. You were great with your, your, your words and the visuals that you were displaying for everyone and I really think you're going to help a lot of people with this episode. And, you know, you really communicated your feelings uh, very well and very, you were very articulate while doing it. So I really want to thank you, uh, not thank just you. for myself for being on the show, but for everyone out there who is going to learn a lot from your story. So um, I guess that's it. That's our show. Yeah. Awesome. So thank th- you so much for giving me the opportunity. And I just wanted to make sure to tell you also, um, like, I know that a lot of the people who come on your show, they, you know, they, we do like just a hell of a lot of work to get to where we are, right? Every survivor does. Um, you have to for yourself. But I definitely wanted to make it a point to tell you that for a lot of us to have the platform to, to hear other stories, like this, like, it's like you're the vessel that's carrying, like, our stories through this journey. <laughs> like your podcast does that. It's the platform for all of that. And if we, if I didn't have that as one of my avenues, like, you know, I, I I'm not sure how else I would have been able to kind of navigate through this part of my life. So it, it just came at just the right time, which is crazy, but it's the impact that this has um, created is just, it's created a lot of change for a lot of good. And it has been a while since I've been able to, um, to come to terms with this or to start to come to terms with this. And yeah, you just, I just really hope you understand like how many lives are really being changed by, by you allowing this platform and, and you supporting people who come on your show and, and you being willing to listen to people's stories and, and just, it, it makes a huge difference. Well, thank you. And I know it doesn't sound like uh, like a genuine thank you, but I really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And everyone out there who shares their experience with me and sends me all of your personal notes and experiences in life, I really want to thank you for you know being part of my life. I will just hope that I do the best job to give you guys you know the respect and time and that you guys all deserve and earned and uh so just thank you very much and you know on behalf of myself and sarah i hope everyone else out there has a great night (laughs) 